You're listening to a podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. My name is Tom Johnson, and today I am speaking with Nipur Renade, who is a PhD candidate at the North Carolina State University. Nipur, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us what program you're in and kind of what you're studying. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Sure, I'd like to introduce myself here. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Communication, Rhetoric, and Digital Media program at the North Carolina State University. And I joined the program in 2017 while I was completing my coursework and my prospectus for my dissertation. I was called as a PhD student or doctoral student. And now that I'm in the last phase, which is my thesis or dissertation phase, I'm called the PhD candidate. I work with Dr. Jason Swartz. He's my advisor and the chair of my dissertation committee. While pursuing the PhD, I interned with SAS for a full year in the publications department. I did a few other research assistantships and also teaching assistantships in which I taught courses in digital rhetoric and technical communication. My research interests fall under technical communication, user experience research, and audience studies or user-generated content because they have a lot of overlap among each other. Uh, so yeah, right now I'm, I'm in my dissertation phase and basically in the data collection phase for my dissertation. Great. You know, now for listeners who don't know, actually in 2015, I met you at the TC World Conference in Bangalore. I remember at that time you hadn't entered a PhD program, right? You were still a student working at a company. I think you said TIBCO. You were very energetic and really into techcom, I remember. You have a high energy level and interest in techcom. And I kind of thought you would just follow the corporate route like most people, jumping from one company uh, to another, climbing the ladders or whatever route we take in our careers. But instead, you went the, the academic route, right? You entered a, a master's program at North Carolina in techcom and then now a PhD program. And now you're entering the the final stages of that with your dissertation. I'm just kind of curious, what prompted you to pursue the academic route rather than the traditional corporate route? Mm-hmm. Yes, Tom, I remember we met at the TC World 2015 conference and you were the keynote speaker. I was really excited to see you there. Yeah, at that time, I was uh, a recent computer engineering graduate student and I just graduated from undergrad. And I was working as a technical writer with TIPCO Software I wanted to grow in the career, but a lot of my interests uh, were in the research aspect of text writing more than just writing conventional documentation. I wanted to do more things like user experience or usability tests and those sorts of things, but there wasn't much scope. The other route to do that was to pursue an education which would help me build that research portfolio which I did not have at that time, but India did not have a formal Uh, technical communication courses at that time, which is why I decided to pursue a degree here in the United States. And that is when I moved to the U.S. in 2015 for the degree. Uh, While I was in my master's program at NC State, we had different courses. We had advanced technical writing. We had uh, theory of technical communication, rhetoric of science, and technical communication and these courses, they were they taught us how the technical communication field is really formed, what is the history of it, and it seemed to have a big disconnect from the work that I did in the industry before I came into the program. 
So it was all the things that I did, which were which I was um, understanding in a completely different way. So understanding the theory or underlying concepts behind it, and that's not the way I learned to do tech writing. I learned it on the job, and it was more practical, more day to day. And I noticed that disconnect, which was in a way some of those things in that academic research has are extremely good and extremely important and vital, which uh, get which which do not get which are not talked about as much in the industry, but are but are significant. And there are some things about the industry like the like the tools and technologies which are not discussed in in academia. And I wanted to kind of fill the gap between these two, which is why I decided to continue research and the way to do that was pursue a PhD program and become the professor in the classroom who teaches those things to students, to the next generation of technical communicators. The second reason to pursue a PhD was the visa issues. Not not many people know, but like technical communication programs in the U.S. are not classified under the STEM, which is uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics because of which the work permits are harder to get. The TechCom students get only a year to apply for the work visa, whereas engineering graduates get up to three years to apply for the work visa. And that insecurity or the, you know, just the, lose, the idea of losing the opportunity of staying in this country or continuing working with the organization that you're part of is difficult for some students to navigate that situation, which is why uh, they turn to PhD programs because it's better to the visa or the work permit situation is better for professors in the field, and you get you get a non-exempt or it it is just a different process for academicians. So so that's a more secure route, according to some folks. Uh, that was also the second reason that I wanted to because I wanted to stay in this country, continue research, and not go back to doing what I was doing in India. So. Yeah, so there was those, those were the two main reasons. Wow, that that's really interesting. I mean, this whole idea that like you're working in a in a company, and or sorry, you, you're as you start your academic program, you realize that like the things that you had been taught in the company or learned in the company have this huge disconnect with what you're kind of learning in this academic program. I think that's really neat or that, I mean, that's, it's interesting. And you want to kind of bring that back to grow the Wait, Do you plan to go back to India and kind of like grow the industry there with, with kind of what you're learning in your program? I mean, I don't see myself doing that at least for the next five years. Currently my focus is to graduate and perform more research here and wait until I'm seeing that in India, a lot of formal education programs and technical communication are growing, or at least people are trying to start up some of those programs in bigger universities. So if that happens, that would give me a good space or a good platform to go and like share my research, share it with the students as well as with the industry. And that is when I would probably want to make that change. Yeah, well, uh, I I think it's you've kind of surfaced a topic that I've written about on my blog before, and it's this divide between academia and the industry. And I, I like your depiction here of like you know industry might have more emphasis on tools and tech. That's not an academia, but on the flip side, the industry or the corporate world often doesn't have the emphasis on the critical analysis or the rhetorical thinking 
that is often emphasized in the academic program. And I've, I've often kind of lamented this, this divide, you know, lack of communication between the two, the disconnect. And so I'm excited to see that your focus here and that you've, you've actually been pretty successful in your research. I saw that you won a student research competition at SIGDOC. You won an award. What can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so like I earlier mentioned, one of my research focuses is user experience and usability studies. And when I was at SAS, uh, when I was interning there, I had an opportunity to conduct usability testing on their product documentation uh, website because they were revamping it a lot and wanted some user input. This was a research that I conducted back then at SAS, and it was uh, a way to optimize usability tests. And my focus on audience research or user research helps me dive deeper into how we analyze our audiences and classifying them or looking from a multidimensional perspective as uh, Dr. Albers, he was at ECU, he talks about looking at users from a multidimensional perspective, like understanding their background, understanding other facets of user characteristics in order to build your usability test or just user research. I applied that model and uh, wrote an algorithm to uh, conduct faster usability tests and get uh, more data than we get in conventional ones. I presented that research at SIGDOC at the student research competition, which is sponsored by Microsoft and won the first award there. The research is again about optimizing usability testing, and I also wrote a proceeding, which is published on their website right now. That's great. Yeah, I, I've actually been to a SIGDOC conference. There was one in Louisiana um, last year or a couple of years ago, and I, I met Dr. Albers. He seemed like a pretty knowledgeable guy, definitely very well known in the industry, accomplished, so that's cool. And I like hearing about your research. Now, I was reading another article you wrote on the Digital Rhetoric Collaborative website, where you're saying that your current research focus, at least at the time of this article, was to, quote, look at the changing nature of audiences, especially in participatory networks, where audiences are, audiences are not only the consumers of information, but also the producers of knowledge. And this, this perspective about looking at the audience as a producer of knowledge seems to be something that you're interested in. Can you tell me, is this kind of the focus of your PhD research or, or is it different? And tell us a little bit more about that focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is definitely the focus of my PhD dissertation project is to look at this change or transition in the way that we are looking at audiences. But my dissertation is about looking at audiences and the transition in the way that we're looking at it. But it also goes back to the disconnect between academia and industry. The idea of doxic code or open authoring is absent currently from academic research, and it's being talked all over the place in the industry. A lot of companies are moving towards it. If you look at the history of audience analysis in academia, uh, in academic research, or even in industry research, I think they were on the same page where everybody thought of audiences as a fictionalized uh, entity. 
So people always imagined audiences that was composition scholars or writers in different fields, as well as, as, well as technical communicators. The academic research also points to that. Eventually, we started collecting more data about audiences, like their demographic characteristics, their the way they used different tools, and the way they uh, gave feedback. All of that research started uh, happening into like started industry folks started thinking about it, how we can collect more and more data, how we can write personas for our audiences. Similarly, that again followed back into academic research where people start looking at feedback and personas, persona development and those kinds of processes. However, I, I started seeing a disconnect again when I started looking back at literature and we do not have too much data on or too much research on uh, using tools like Usabilla to collect audience uh, data on tools like Google Analytics with which we can look at audiences and the way that they're using our information and product documentation. The open docs, open authoring process, open source documentation, there is no research about all of these uh, processes. In the industry, it is, I think, more taken more seriously than in academia right now. And they're constantly, with big data and all these kinds of research, they're constantly trying to learn more about their users, learn more about their audiences. But sometimes not all of that information gets fed back into the documentation process. It gets lost somewhere. For example, tools like Google Analytics used in the industry, they have they produce so much data. We know so much about the users, but it's until we know how to use that information, we don't know what to do with it. So it's just lying around uh, in so many companies. So my focus is tying these things together, again, bringing that research to academia so that it can get the attention that it deserves, and also taking this research to the industry to help help industry practitioners figure out what they can do with all this data that they are getting about the users. Cool. I, I like this focus on the users, actually. I think if you know we were to boil down what's a, a best practice for writing in general, it would be to focus on the user, You know their pain points, their information needs, what their goals are, what problems they're encountering. And yeah, honestly, like if there's anything that drags documentation down, it's our lack of awareness of that user. So, I mean, it's definitely... A great focus and this whole par this whole emerging trend about docs code I do think is is uh it's it's great to hear that you know you're you're including that and focusing on that and it is sort of absent from academia I, I think that's uh, definitely a gap and these two worlds can connect and we're gonna dive into that more as we talk now let's see if I have any more questions I want to ask. All right, so you, you want to sort of get practitioners, uh, or sorry, you want to collect data. You're in the data collection sort of phase of your dissertation, right? So what are you hoping to get help from practitioners about? Like what kind of data are you trying to gather? Just by talking to practitioners about their day-to-day -day activities, I'm learning a lot about the documentation process itself. So earlier when we used the waterfall models in most companies for documentation, and now they're changing to a more agile approach, a lot of things around them are changing. Their collaborations with developers, their collaborations with other, other stakeholders, which also includes users at some point, and just 
how the ways in which they're understanding users or connect with users in some ways. For example, I was talking to some of that Epic Games, and they have a Twitch channel where they uh, stream videos about their games, and that's that's a way that they can connect to the audiences. And the technical communicators are doing this because that gives them a platform to directly interact with their users. At at one of the companies uh, that I've spoken at, they are actually they have a Slack channel where users can directly ask questions on the channel and writers are a part of that channel and can respond directly to users. And based on those inputs from users, they can make changes to documentation. So this kind of uh, collaboration, collaborative space that uh, these practitioners talk about when, when they start discussing that with me, I ask them more questions about this relationship that they have with the outside world or and outside the organization and focus more on what is the infrastructure and how is the collaboration really happening? What are the components of it? Uh, who are the actors and actors of a human as well as non-human? And I, I try to focus on that and get more data. Well, that's that's good, good. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have a lot more to say about this collaborative space. I mean, especially when we're talking about Docs mm-hmm. Code. Because I think mm-hmm. Git, GitHub definitely opens doors for a lot of users to communicate with technical writers and other people producing content, right? P- users can log issues, mm-hmm. they can file pull requests, they have really a communication mm-hmm. point that kind of wasn't always present previously, at least in a so right. public and formalized way. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I just wanted to add in another tidbit. I was listening to this podcast from Instructive with a interview with Hans uh, van der Mai. Sorry, I'm not really uh, saying the name correctly, I'm sure. Anyway, this guy has basically spent his life researching minimalism. And he he said that one problem technical writers have is that we don't we don't focus on like troubleshooting enough. And you see these sites like Stack Overflow and other Mm -hmm. social channels where people like their main Neat information needs are around the problems they're facing. And he said that like a third of the content should really be focused on troubleshooting. And I think part of this reason why we often don't add more troubleshooting information is because of this disconnect with users. You know, if we were more like aware of all these problems, we'd probably expand a lot of this or shift our focuses, our focus more to this troubleshooting area. Anyway, all right. So now you have some questions for me too that you want to ask, and so why don't we shift uh, gears a little bit? And now you you drive questions, and I'll I'll answer. That sounds great. So one of the things that I'm going to continue from the previous question, what I asked practitioners, that's a question I'm going to ask you to. Can you talk about what you do on a day to day basis as a technical or professional communicator for the organization that you're part of? Yeah, so I'm I'm at uh, Amazon in the App Store side of the business, which is it's not AWS. Most people just kind of assume that I work in AWS, and it's not the case. There are there are hundreds of technical writers at Amazon, and only mm-hmm. sorry, only like a third of them are AWS. Anyway, the App Store is focused on people getting uh, getting third party developers to build apps for Amazon's platforms for sorry Amazon's devices like Fire TV, uh, Fire Tablet, and other services. So my main 
effort is to try to get people to create apps. And, and the audience is developers, people who are often seasoned developers, but not necessarily. So it could include everybody who's like behind a big app to somebody who's creating an app you've never heard of. My day-to-day, I work with various engineering teams and they push out features. I'm one, I'm a, we're a two-person team in terms of the tech writers. We plug into developer marketing and developer relations. So we have people who are, you know, performing business analysis roles, people who are performing developer marketing roles, even like Salesforce techs and so forth in our group. And, and yeah, so that's pretty much it. But, oh, sorry, I was going to expand on one other thing. So because we're only two, two people, we will often work with a lot of different teams within the organization. And sometimes we, we write the docs for these teams, but other times we'll just say, hey, you need to submit a code uh, review with the changes you want into the documentation because we're not going to write it. Like, we don't know your product. We're not going to ramp up on it but we're going to edit and publish your documentation. And that's becoming more common as as the the uh, organization grows and just becomes, you know, impossible to sort of write for all these different teams. We end up becoming more of like the gatekeepers and managers and content stewards of the content, which has its its pluses and minuses, but that's pretty much it. So, um yeah, we can say that the other roles that you play, you said, are the gatekeeper manager. But I'm sure you also have to do a lot of editing and reviewing each other's work since you're the only two writers there. Or do you have an editorial team for that kind of work? Uh, there's another doc team that has an editor, and they've got a style guide. And they're a little bit more robust in terms of their size. I think they have you know, five times as many writers. Or they once did. So yeah, it just varies. There's lots of like different pockets of writers. Some some are more robust than others. Like you know, if you're part of AWS, you're you're part of like I don't know how many. They've got more than a hundred writers over there. And if you're part of Seller Central, they've got a big group and you know different different sort of pockets of of the organization. You could be a lone writer. You know, if you're a lone writer, maybe you come up with all your own tools, your own delivery method, you know, whereas if you're part okay. of a big group, you're you're aligning with that. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Do you also use the docs of code approach? Yeah, we do. And now here's where I, I do want to expand a little bit because so the docs is code just to fill everybody in in case, you know, this is a new concept because you said for academics, it's not that new. So maybe we have academics listening to this podcast. But basically, the docs is code philosophy is to treat documentation somewhat the same as you treat code. Not not exactly, of course, but you, you write in Markdown typically using an editor such as Visual Studio Code. You manage the content in Git. You don't necessarily perform all the builds locally you just push your your update updates to a server the server kicks off the build and deploys it and uh, the the cool thing is that because you're writing in a simple format like markdown or restructured text or ascii doc or something users users can easily contribute 
Whereas in the past, if you were writing in XML, it's much more daunting because XML is more complex. It's not something you can just pick up in a minute or two. So do we follow Docs' code? Yes, and there, there are varying degrees that people can follow Docs' code. I mean, you don't necessarily have to check all the boxes. But what I think is the key and the reason why people would want to consider Docs' code is not just because it's kind of neat to you know use similar software methodologies for Docs as developers, but the whole premise of Docs' code is to unlock collaboration with developers to meet them in their tool space so that they can more easily contribute and collaborate with documentation. As such, it really only makes sense to use Docs' code if you're trying to collaborate with developers. And in the organization I'm in, I mentioned we're two technical writers working with a lot of different teams. And so if we want these other teams to contribute and author content, well, it's not gonna it's not gonna work if we tell them to write in XML, but it does work if we tell them, hey, all you have to do is write in Markdown and you're gonna submit a pull request just like you're you do with your with your own code engineers at, at many different companies have they already have common paths that paths that they use or approaches they follow when they want to roll in code into their project right the the terminology that that they use at my group is you you raise a cr like you raise a, a code review and then other people approve it and then it gets merged in and on the one hand like this sort of makes it so engineers are writing more, which might be good, might not be good, but it definitely scales. Like people don't have to have, they don't have to have special tools in terms of like proprietary licenses. You can change things after you roll it in, or you can reject it and say, "Now fix this first. And, and yeah, you, you can, you can sort of just manage the process. You can, you can say no. This is not good enough. You you don't have any detail. You know, work on it more, and people sort of understand that workflow. They you don't have to explain it. They they get it, and and that's kind of a a cool cool approach. But again, only for developers and only in basically software documentation shops that are creating dev docs such as API docs. Uh, if you're in other industries, I don't think it makes as much sense. Okay. You were talking because the format of the document, since it's Markdown, is easier. Is the, and the pull request, so I'm assuming that you're using GitHub for the infrastructure? We're, we're using Git. We're not, not necessarily okay. GitHub. GitHub is just like oh, a, okay. it's a, a, right. an online hub that manages Git projects. And so most, most companies have their own internal <clears throat> Git infrastructure. We're just piggybacking off of that. I did some surveys asking people what their tools are, and it's very common that people have custom tools. And, and by custom, it's likely their, their company's own infrastructure, engineering, build management systems, and so forth. Because like pretty much the default now is that developers manage their code using Git, using some kind of infrastructure at their company. So we just piggyback on that. And, and if you have developers building out your workflows that you know they're already going to be familiar with that infrastructure and so it makes it right. a lot easier but but the project. sorry i wanted yeah. to add one more thing i have tried actually putting content out on github and i know the aws group does do this like one of their outputs is github interestingly enough and 
this is this is something that is probably important to consider if you're trying to get the users, not just other other author collaborators from within your company, right? If you want to actually get the user's feedback, GitHub can be important because it gives them a place to log issues, to, to I don't know, otherwise interact. Whereas if you don't have that, that distribution point, it makes it very difficult. But, but having a, like all your source on GitHub is not easy because, you know, now if you're creating content prior to release, you can't really push it out there on GitHub because GitHub is open. And so you have more complexities in terms of how you're going to manage that content. Um, anyway. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I can, I, I understand how this could work the best for like a smaller team where you know who is contributing like developers for a certain type of documentation that is API documentation in your case. But like you said, if you blow it up, do you think there is a lot of pressure on the project management process itself in some ways? It's like there are too many people participating constantly or the release cycles and considering all of that. When you say too many people participating, you mean like internal internal engineers authoring or external users like uh, interacting? External users, uh, external users creating issues and constantly the documentation being updated in some way or the other. Yeah, yeah. And this is unfortunate, but like usually once you release a product, you kind of move on to another another project and like the the development team isn't always available and dedicated to that project for the life of the project. So let's say you create a sample app, you push it out to GitHub and at first it's exciting. You know, people are, are downloading, they're cloning your project, they're forking it, but then the engineering team moves on, the tech writer moves on because, you know, that project is sort of done. But users mm -hmm. keep logging issues on GitHub. They have suddenly a, a public space where they can note problems, right? And you don't want to look like you're ignoring them. So you want to you want to address them. But suddenly, like, you don't have bandwidth anymore because you're, that's no longer your active project. This is This puts companies in a difficult position. So it's kind of like if you're going to put content on GitHub... Theoretically and ideally, you should manage that content for the life of, for its as long as it's on GitHub. But now you you have this uncomfortable problem that you may have to reject requests for fixes. You know, maybe there's a bug and that's just how it's going to be, or maybe people want more information about something and you don't have the bandwidth to sort of create another tutorial or enhancement to the doc. Anyway, that's kind of like the realities of having a lot of different projects and a lot of different teams that are constantly, you know, changing and shifting. But but mm -hmm. we are sort of empowering users. It's kind of like on on amazon.com when you buy a product and suddenly you can you can review the product, right? If you don't like it, you you have a public space or at least a space that you can you can talk about all its problems. Well, on GitHub, if you've got an issues log where people are like noting all kinds of problems with with code you know that's a good thing if you're trying to make it better right if you want to like improve it and it can be a bad thing if you're like uh we're kind of archiving this project in a read-only mode it's it's right. you know it's, it empowers people but definitely like if we want to make software better we need to have this this feedback so it's definitely valuable to gather all this input because there's 
There's no way you can anticipate all the problems people will have with things before it's released. Yeah, that's that's really interesting considering the lifetime of the project is such a such an important thing as we move to collecting user feedback. So I was trying to understand how the writer's responsibilities have changed changed over the period of time, either for using the Docs code approach or for using the open authoring where anybody can come in and contribute. Our authors now are our writers now acting more as definitely collaborators, but also reviewers, moderators, uh, gatekeepers, like you mentioned earlier. Could you tell us a little more about each of these roles? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think the role is significantly changing, especially in, in the developer documentation domain. A lot of times the technologies are complex, right? They're, they're, Things that like the engineers themselves just need to document and explain. I mean, technical writers can, of course, and there are varying levels of, of tech savvy, but the ability to to jump in and suddenly explain like, oh, here's how you're going to make all your calls with this C++ API and, you know, this is the workflow. Like, It's not really practical. Like you want to let developers explain the code that they've written. And at the same time, developers often don't have much of a clue about like publishing tools or like how, how to get content in front of users. So technical writers will often play more of an editorial and publishing role. The tech writer also facilitates the review of content, which is, is something that, that shouldn't be sort of minimized. When a, when a developer writes something, right, the technical writer says, okay, this is great. Now let me review this content with the field engineers. Let me review this content with the support team and we'll see if they present issues. So you're kind of like, you're kind of pulling together different parts of the organization around content to improve it. And this is something that, you know, if engineers are just writing and they don't have that process to kind of have uh, the review process, you know, they're not going to not they're not going to just go out of their way to pull in legal, for example, and to pull in uh, a different project manager who's also affected by the code or something. Right. The engineers. I hate to be I hate to generalize, you know, but it's sort of impossible in this situation not to. Engineers tend to be very myopic and and focused on a specific sliver of what they're doing because it's they're specialized people. They're They're very, you know, they're. They have deep knowledge about what they're doing, but not necessarily broad knowledge across the organization about all the different stakeholders that need to be looped in. So the tech writer plays an important role in bringing together all these different groups around the content. As far as, and then, and then the other aspect that is often forgotten, right, in if you have engineers writing docs is the user, right? So once you publish the content, how do we bring in the user's feedback and what they're saying? Engineers are often kind of protected and probably by design within the organization so that they're not constantly getting a barrage of user input and feedback and requests. But as such, that insulation can can make them unaware of, of users' feedback. Engineering teams are very hungry to understand how users are using the product, what their feedback is. And so the technical writer can also play this role where you... Uh, champion the user's voice and you present their their feedback and you say hey 
you know, our field engineers say that this is a problem they're having, or maybe on GitHub, this is a, these are the issues people are logging, or, or you can say, hey, traffic-wise, nobody's hitting this page, or everybody's going to page X, and we have no idea why. Is there some issue there? So you bring the user's input there. So it's kind of an interesting shift. Even you may not you may not be writing the content, right? You may just be editing it, publishing it, facilitating review, and presenting the user feedback. And all those activities are incredibly important because they they influence the content, but they don't necessarily require you to author the content. That said, you know, it's not as if you can be completely unaware of like what the content is all about, right? If if there's a workflow that describes something, you have to kind of understand whether the right language is being used, the right terms and lingo, whether it's aligning with sort of industry best practices and so forth. But a lot of that will come out when you begin this review process. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting to me. It seems like it's a very genre specific. So it works for the product documentation in in bigger organizations or bigger or like maybe smaller organizations, but more in a in a software company, it is it is focused towards content publishing and these different teams. So I'm thinking I can't have thinking uh, about a beginner in technical writing, either who is uh, trying to do a certification course or a master's degree in technical communication and who wants to apply for a job like this. Do you think that that's a skill, the collaboration aspect? Is that a skill that you look for uh, when you're hiring technical writers for your team? Well, yeah, there, this is another sad kind of aspect of, of the profession is that there's a disconnect between the hiring criteria and what people actually do on the job. Hiring criteria basically requires, at least in the API doc space, requires candidates to be tech savvy. Uh, a lot of companies, especially if they have engineers who are running the hiring committee, will favor tech. And if a candidate can't kind of articulate a code sample in the way they want, then they may, may get passed over. I don't think that when people hire, they're aware that that you know the these other roles I was describing as editor, publisher, uh, collaborator, reviewer, they're often overlooked. People don't don't realize this, these other roles that uh, writers play. So, I mean, to give some credit, like you, you do have to have a technical foundation to kind of work with content, right? And to be able to learn what you need to learn to understand the right language and, and workflows. But I think it's overemphasized and good candidates might get overlooked. So you really have to be able to sell yourself. You have to be able to mm-hmm. articulate the value that you bring. I know definitely like different companies have different hiring processes, but in addition to the tech, you know, writing skills will will be required. You'll have to submit writing samples that show that you have like a good command of the language, you can organize things well, you can express complex concepts clearly and then a third sort of facet is your leadership skills like how well do you interact with engineers because you know this this process i've been describing is is you're interfacing with a lot of different people right so 
you've got to have good people skills and you've got to sort of demonstrate people skills. An interview, your interviewer might ask maybe about a time you pushed back against a, against a trend that people wanted to go. And how did you sort of negotiate that, that conflict, you know, and if you can't really speak to it well, then they may conclude that you wouldn't be a good fit. So it's not just a matter of giving lip service to having people skills. It's like being able to dig up experiences that demonstrate how you mediated conflict and kind of moved forward an idea or how you dug deeper to find customer data to promote a certain uh, direction that you wanted to go. (laughs) So anyway, trying to find Mm -hmm. candidates that sort of check all these boxes with leadership and writing skills and tech skills challenging and then when they get in the role suddenly realizing that oh you've you're you have a multi-dimensional role as a editor and a publisher and a collaborator and a reviewer you know it's like there's a lot to to tech com it comes out in many different ways yeah that is that is interesting <coughs> excuse me um i i really like the idea of presenting yourself as a user advocate which i think students can do in their own spaces when they're working on their graduate studies or when they're working on projects by themselves or open source authoring and trying to contribute to these open source software documentation. I mean, that could be a good place to start for them and showcase their skills and uh, the ability to play these different roles. So I think that was, those were the questions that I had. Um, hey, I just have one more question. Yeah. This is yeah. one I, had in my list for you, but I didn't ask earlier. So you're talking, you're, you're focusing a lot on, you know, having the user be a producer of knowledge or looking at ways users influence the production of knowledge. I'm just kind of wondering how, how this concept might apply in academia. Let's say that students are writing dissertations. How could you have like the audience for the dissertation also be part producer in that dissertation is that is that something that's ever been done or like is that not feasible and why so incidentally i because i've chose this project or this idea for my dissertation i decided to write my dissertation in github and nc state has their own enterprise version of github so right now i've hosted the first chapter or the part of the first chapter on github which i can open up to collaborators or other researchers who would want to contribute to it. But because dissertation is a genre which is uh, focused on a single student and their own work throughout their PhD, it might there might be privacy concerns. But let's say it was a research paper that people wanted to co-author. And there is this methodology which is being extensively used these days, which is called a collaborative autoethnography, where people from different places bring in experiences about a certain concept and write a paper together and then kind of bring out themes from it and start documenting them. So that's, that's a method which could, for a journal paper, which could work using an open authoring platform like GitHub. So how I see it happen is that every research, including dissertation, has a literature review, for example, and people always come across different literature. So for for me alone, like my literature review chapter is probably going to be about 20 to 30 pages. And there is only so much literature that I myself can dive into and 
come up with and start writing or documenting. But if I had help from other researchers who themselves have done similar research and they want to contribute their ideas to it, it would be a more comprehensive chapter or a more comprehensive depiction of the research in a certain field is is what I believe. And uh, I think it is doable. Now, the flip side of that or some of the challenges there would be uh, authoring in a certain format or the tools and uh, technological understanding for publishing information. So right now I'm using Visual Studio Code to write in LaTeX and publish uh, my content uh, in a PDF format. But that's the infrastructural limitation that people might face. But instead, if I was writing in Markdown and publishing it on GitHub or and or using an easier method of writing like Microsoft Word or Google Docs, then it would be totally accessible for people to contribute in it. So I think it could work just like I think it could work for technical manuals. The other day I was uh, listening to a recording that you've posted on your blog. It's it's by Ralph Squillis. It's on open authoring, collaboration acro- across the disciplines. I think it's present. It's a recording of a presentation that Ralph gave in the past. In that, he mentions the idea of open source documentation where a lot of people contribute, but only 5% of that content is really helpful. But then in order to generate that 5%, we need so many more resources, which are so hard to find. So I would, I would, I'm bringing that in just to explain this more clearly of the kind of value that collaborations or multiple people can add to any project based on if they understand the genre, the context, and the purpose of of writing it. Wow, I, I think that's great. Like, I'm sort of blown away by the just your opener there that you are writing this project on GitHub because now you've suddenly made everything open, right? So we can see the progress, assuming it's an open GitHub mm-hmm. project, but we can see kind of the directions you're taking. We can make notes. I could go in and log an issue and maybe say, hey, consider this or add this research. I think that's awesome. And also the, the I can't remember, you called it experience ethnography or something, the, the collaboration piece reminds me, there's a project that Angentil has with collecting Docs' code case studies or samples that I think has worked well, where people, I mean, she has this whole book on Docs-like code and she tries to find different like people who have implemented docs like code who want to share their experiences and she lets people submit them as case studies and i think that's worked well too i mean people it's hard to collaborate on a single piece of writing but if you have a lot of different experiences that people can write up and contribute i think that that works too what kind of input can i channel your way from practitioners like do you are you going to be doing surveys? Are you trying to gather more contact points for people who want to share their experiences? Or is there any other way that I can help you gather practitioner input for your data collection? I would like to hear from practitioners who are working in software companies and who use the open uh, docs of code approach or the open authoring approach in which they kind of collect feedback from users in some way. That's what I would like to know. 
sometimes the feedback is more visible in processes like you know creating issues by the users users writing feedback on the documentation platform itself or the documentation website sometimes it's invisible like when they collect user data from channels like the google analytics or any other kind of analytical tool data analytics tool and if they are doing any of these things then i would really like to talk to them and understand the ways in which they are writing and publishing documentation so that would be great help yeah and you know i i definitely can round up some people i i recently realized that like as a having a popular blog gives me visibility with people and when i did my recent developer document trends survey I just embedded this little note at the top of every post and gathered like 400 responses. So I would be more than happy to put a little note there saying, hey, if you are gathering data from users and want to participate in this survey, or sorry, participate in this research, reach out to Nippur. How many people Mm -hmm. are you looking to get? Like, do you want to have 20 people or 200 people? No, I'm looking for 15 to 20 people. Okay. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to facilitate sort of a bridge between industry and and academic collaboration points just because I feel like I have that opportunity. And and if if we could get you the right data, that would be great because like I, I would personally be very interested to see the different approaches people have. You know, what what are people doing to leverage all this user feedback to influence the the knowledge produced. So anyway, Nupur, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I enjoyed it and enjoyed hearing about your research. And I, I hope, you know, this project goes well. Any last words or thoughts that you want to share, like how maybe how people can find you or where they can learn more about you? Sure. Thanks so much, Tom, for having me. And I'm really excited uh, to share this idea on your blog and people contributing i would be really excited to see that uh people can reach me at my email address which is nsjalind at the rate ncsu.edu or also my twitter handle which is nupur writing and that would be great thanks so much for having me yeah thank you